I want to invite you guys to turn over to 2 John, and don't turn too fast or you'll miss it. It's one page. Probably on every Bible in this room, it only takes one page. Just out of curiosity, as you're turning over to 2 John, uh, I'm wondering if you'd be willing, show of hands, uh, who has heard a sermon preached on 2 John before? Anybody out there? I've seen two, three, three hands. Which is not very many. I mean, if you're listening to this on the podcast, you can't get the scale of this room and how many people are in here, but three hands was not many. That was a small percentage. And, and to be honest, I've never taught on Second John before. This is going to be a first for me and for many of you. So God help us as we go into his word this morning. It, fortunately, for those of you who have been at Trinity for the last few months, uh, we've been walking through John's first letter in the New Testament, First John. And the first letter of John is kind of an expansion on the, the second letter of John. The second letter we're going to look at today, you're going to see a lot of the same terms, a lot of the same themes, and what really is almost in germ form, uh, 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 I won't call it a test case, but some people, off, uh, some people have believed that this was, this was him taking a first pass at his themes, and then he follows up with First John, actually, and builds them out because maybe they weren't uh, as clear or he had some people who he had less of a relationship with that he wanted to, to, to elaborate on. He knew he could trust the Second John recipients to, to kind of know what he's talking about. But anyway, it shouldn't be too unfamiliar to you if you've been here with us for the last few months. And one of the things that you're going to see come out a lot in this letter is, is a connection, a specific connection that John's already made in First John. It's a connection between truth and love. And that's the connection we want to unpack together this morning. So... One of the things we notice when, we, when we're walking through 1 John is that John loves sharp distinctions, binaries, either-ors, this, not that. So he uses lots of, lots of comparisons. For example, darkness or light. You're either walking in the darkness or you're walking in the light. Nobody walks in between, he says. You're either of God or you're of the devil, he tells us in 1 John. You're either with Christ or you're an antichrist, he says. You're with them or you're against them. That's something we notice all through the, the first letter of John. That's what makes this morning and the text that we're going to come to here in Second John a little bit ironic, I think. Because in Second John, John is going to argue for the importance. He's going to help us to see the importance of holding together two things we're a lot more likely to separate out. So First John's just full of John separating things. Second John, he's binding two things together that, that we're more likely to separate. And those two things are truth and love. I'm just going to build a straw man here, a caricature. Hopefully he'll, you'll recognize at least something of these two characters in your own life. Maybe, maybe you, maybe friends that you have. I think there's some truth to the picture I'm going to paint you, though. Some people are really all about truth. They're into study. They're into clarity and specificity. They dot their I's. They cross their T's. They're willing to confront people who are not of the truth to make sure that the truth is clear and supported. Some people are opt more often by, by default, more by, by personality or instinct for what we might call love. They, they're more about service and empathy and affirmation. They, they would rather avoid conflict. They would much rather affirm than they would condemn for people who are wired up more on the truth side of things, I mean, surely there's some sort of personality letter that goes with that or number of some such. You guys can enlighten me on that after the service this morning. For those who are, who are more on that truth side, they look at, the, at some of the, the instincts of the lovers as kind of mushy. 
sentimental, maybe naive and anti-intellectual. The lovers look at the truth side people and think, I don't have time for that, for that kind of hostility, for that kind of nuance. That kind of talk leads to no action, only thinking, never doing. And if we're going to love, if we're going to help, if we're going to serve, we can't get bogged down in that sort of thinking. When it comes to truth and love, I think sometimes we are pretty comfortable with binaries, with either-ors, even if we wouldn't necessarily own up to it. I'm talking now more almost at the level of our subconscious and our instincts, what seems right or plausible to us. And that's why we need this letter and what it's going to tell us this morning. Because John is going to tell us that, 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 that truth and love must go together. You cannot separate them and have what Jesus came to offer you. Now, I'm going to, I'm going to be unpacking that connection for the rest of our time this morning uh, just a moment from now. What I want to do right now is just give you a little bit of background information on this letter because it's the first time we've come to it and it sounds like the first time most of us have, have heard or taught on it. And so I want to make sure that you know some background information that's going to be useful to you as we start working our way through verse by verse. So it's another letter that's typically attached to the same author who wrote 1 John. And the reason it's typically attached is not that it says, Hi, my name is John. This is the second letter that I wrote. The first one you'll know as First John. It, it doesn't say that. It actually doesn't come with his name at all. He just refers to himself as the elder, which is a, a term of respect and authority in local churches of the, time, of the New Testament time. The reason we attach the, first author, the author of First John to the, the second letter of John is not what he tells us, but, but the themes and the language. The style of language is so similar. And the things that he's interested in are so similar. And the things that he's warning them against are so similar that most have connected these two and thought, this guy is writing to a, if not the same community, he's writing to another community close by who is experiencing some of the same problems that the community who received First John was experiencing. That's mostly why people have associated those two letters The letter itself isn't signed. The people who got it knew who he was. The people who got it, there's another detail that you need to know before we read. He refers to them as the elect lady and her children whom I love in truth. Most everybody I've read is convinced that he's actually using a metaphor here. He's not meaning a particular woman who had children. He's writing to her and to her her family. But that he was using the image of a lady for the local church and the children were the members of that local church. It was, it was, it's a familiar way to speak of the church in the New Testament. Uh, the church is sometimes called the bride of Christ. Um, it, it's a, a feminine image for a local church is not unfamiliar. And John wouldn't be the only one to use it if that's what he's doing here. And it certainly reads like he's writing to a church, not just to one person. Because most of the words he's using are plurals. He's, he's, he's writing to them as a group. So he's writing to this church. He's writing from, verse 13 tells us, the children of this church's elect sister, so probably his own church, wherever he lived. And he's writing not just to give them greetings, but to try to guide them away from something that was dangerous and towards something that was life-giving. The letter we're going to read together this morning, we're going to read uh, in total. It's only 13 verses. It's actually way more common. Uh, A letter of this length was way more common at the time than the one that we just finished in 1 John. And what I want you to notice as we read through this letter is how many times the words truth and love come up. I especially want you to notice how often truth and love come up together in the same phrase. And when you hear truth, what I want you to plug into that, what I want you to think about, where John's coming from, is 
what we know about who God is, what God has done in Jesus, and what God has commanded from his people. Truth, as John means it, is a reference to what we know about who God is and what God has done and what God has commanded. That's truth. So think that when you hear the word truth. And then when you hear the word love, think how we're supposed to relate to each other. John's catchphrase for what relationships in the local church should look like. Now, all that said, hopefully that's going to help you a little bit as we start to move through this text. Now I want to invite you to stand with me in honor of God's word. And I'm just going to read straight through, beginning in verse 1 through the end of the letter in verse 13. This is God's word to us this morning. The elder to the elect lady and her children, whom I love in truth. And not only I, but also all who know the truth, because of the truth that abides in us and will be with us forever. Grace, mercy, and peace will be with us from God the Father and from Jesus Christ, the Father's Son, in truth and love. I rejoiced greatly to find some of your children walking in the truth, just as we were commanded by the Father. And now, I ask you, dear lady, not as though I were writing you a new commandment, but the one that we've had from the beginning, that we love one another. And this is love, that we walk according to his commandments. This is the commandment, just as you have heard from the beginning, so that you should walk in it. For many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. Such a one is the deceiver and the antichrist. Watch yourselves so that you may not lose what we've worked for, but may win a full reward. Everyone who goes on ahead and doesn't abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. Whoever abides in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. If anyone comes to you and doesn't bring this teaching, don't receive him into your house or give him any greeting. For whoever greets him takes part in his wicked works. Though I have much to write to you, I would rather not use paper and ink. Instead, I hope to come to you and to talk face to face so that our joy may be complete. The children of your elect sister greet you. This is God's word. You can be seated. I mentioned this truth and love connection runs all through the letter, and our job this morning is to try to understand what the connection is. That's all we're going to do. We're going to try to see what truth has to do with love using Second John as our guide. And I've pulled out a few things, a few connections in this letter that I think are important for us to see this morning that will help us as we try to be faithful in our, in, our, uh, in our love for one another and in our witness to Jesus in the world. Here's the first one. Truth gives love its direction. The first connection I want you to see, this comes out of first, uh, verse 4 to verse 6, is that truth gives love its direction. It sets its course. It shows us what it looks like. So after John gives a blessing in the first couple of verses, and after he celebrates in verse 4 what he's glad to hear about, his, about this church, that these children are walking in truth just as they've been commanded, that the first thing that he says to actually guide and encourage them, the first command that he gives them, the first command we want to understand and, and press into this morning, is Jesus' core command, the command that they love one another. And it comes out in verse 5. I ask you, dear lady, that we love one another. 
And we've spent a lot of time on this command in the past few months. It came up several times in John. I mean, it was the most important central theme in John, was that we're supposed to love one another as those who have been loved well by God in Jesus. So I'm not going to spend a ton of time unpacking what he means by loving one another. There's a lot of material online if you're interested in, in, in reading some more about that or listening to those sermons. What I want to do this morning, and, and, and to connect truth to the direction that love gets from it, is to probe a little deeper in that next verse. So in verse 5, he tells us the command is that we love one another. And then in verse 6, in verse 6, he says, This is love, that we walk according to his commandments. And this is his commandment, just as you've heard from the beginning, so that you should walk in it. I take the this here to be the love command. So he's saying this is love, that we walk in his commandments, and this is his commandments, that we love one another. It's this circle that he's got that's reinforcing we saw the same thing back in 1 John chapter 5. Almost the exact same phrase. So what's this connection? Here's how I see the circle working out. I believe what John is saying is that God's commands to us show us what love is and what love seeks in the life of the one you love. That God's commands help us see that love is always purpose-driven. It's not arbitrary it's not make it whatever you want it to be. It's specific. It's purpose-driven. It has a goal that it seeks. And God's commands show us what that goal is. They give love its direction. Let me, show you, let me show you where I'm coming from on this. I think a lot of times when we speak of love, we often mean a kind of affection that we have or kind of warm feeling that we have towards the one that we love, towards someone or something. So... When you say you love puppies, that's probably what you mean. You love seeing them. You love watching them. You love petting their soft fur. You love the uh, tenderness that you feel in your heart when you're around one. They make you happy. That's what you mean when you say you love puppies, probably. Sometimes when we say we love something, we mean we enjoy consuming it. Not the puppies, hopefully. So we want something. We want something in our lives. We enjoy it. That's what we mean when we say, I love a good steak, or I love long walks on the beach, or I love football, or I love romantic comedies. Love is the enjoyment of something. In both of those kind of meanings of love, there's something about that object that draws us to it. There's some beauty in it that we want to say yes to. There's some goodness in it that we want to experience and have for ourselves. And that is partly what the Bible means by love. Often the Bible has that in mind. But the Bible has those meanings for love. Something in that object that draws me to it, plus another really critical piece that we can't miss and that I think John is getting at here. When the Bible tells us to love one another, it means, yes, affirm the goodness in each other. Yes, see what's beautiful there. Yes, look for God's image and, and embrace it. But it also means seek one another's good. It also means use whatever resources we have to invest in each other's lives so that we each grow into lives that are flourishing and full and free. So love is action that seeks what's best for the thing you love. Not just attraction to the thing you love, but a willingness to invest in and seek the good of the thing you love. So so love says you have to eat your vegetables because I don't want you to be sick all winter. Or, or love says, you can't have that bowl of ice cream, that second one or third one. You've had the one already, maybe the two already. No more ice cream. Love says that. 
And, and in, in our love for one another, the kind of love John's commanding us to here, it is God's commands that tell us how to love one another. God's commands lay out what, what's good for us. God's commands show us what we might not otherwise recognize about what each other need. So think about the Ten Commandments, even a famous section of God's commands in the, New Te- or in the Old Testament. Many of those commands are specifically about how we're supposed to relate to one another. Think of those commands as how God's people would love one another in a way that honored him. If they love one another, they're not going to steal from one another. That's not good for you. So I can't say that I love you and, that I sort of, and mean by it simply that I'm sort of drawn to something about you while stealing from you. That, that action means I, I actually don't love you. Paul does the same kind of, makes the same kind of connection in Ephesians chapter 4. He's listing off of things that if you're going to be in Christ and you're going to love one another in Christ, here's what it'll look like. It's specific. It comes with a road map. You won't be deceitful. You won't have angry outbursts. You won't steal, but you'll work in order to share. You won't tear down other people, but you'll talk in a way that builds them up instead. There won't be bitterness or anger or slander, but instead you'll be kind, you'll be tender, you'll forgive. These are commands that God gives us through his people. Paul, in this case, Moses before him, that tell us how to treat one another in a way that, that will be loving. So when God, when, when, when God speaks through John here in 2 John and says that this is love, that we walk in his commands, what he's saying is that God's commands show us what love looks like. It gives love its direction. This is the agenda that we pursue in each other's lives. Truth shows us how to relate to one another in a way that's good for one another. Truth gives love its direction. That's the first connection. Hope that's clear. I want to make a second connection next. This one is going to take a little more work. So the first connection between truth and love that I see here in 2 John is that, is that God's commands, part of what John means by truth, God's vision for what good living is, for what's good for you, for what leads to flourishing and to thriving communities. Those commands give love its direction. But also, John says in verse 7 and following, he, I think he's trying to show us that truth about what God has done in Jesus gives love its model. So as you're seeking after this direction, you're going to need help to get there. You're going to need to know how to move in that direction. You're going to need fuel for the car. If you think of, of God's commands as the kind of map laid out in front of you, and your life is the car, and you know my lo- my, me loving is going to mean me going this way in this person's life, according to these commands. I'm going to need some fuel to move that car down that road that the map has laid out for me. And that fuel comes through the truth about what God has done in Jesus, through the model for love that he's given us in his love for us in Christ. That's what's at stake, I believe, in what John says next. Now, I want to do a little bit of work in the text to try to help you see this, because it, is, it wasn't immediately obvious to me, I'll be honest. In verse 7, right after John has made this connection between, um, between loving and obeying, he says, For many deceivers have gone out into the world. So what comes in verse 7, that key word at the beginning, that for, that because, is going to tell us why the command to love one another according to God's commands is so important. You've got to get this, he's saying, because of what I'm going to talk about now. And the reason that love command and that it be directed by God's commands is so important for you to remember and to hold on to, he's telling his friends, is that a lot of people have gone out into the world trying to deceive you. They've tried to give you a different understanding of who God is and what he's done in Jesus. 
And if you buy into their understanding of what God has done in Jesus, then what you're going to need to love one another well will be ripped out from under you like a rug. That's what he's trying to say, I believe, in these verses. Let me show you. We've seen this, we've seen this phrase about, about uh, those who, who would deceive, who have gone out into the world in 1 John. And what we talked about when we were studying that letter is that it's most likely a reference to a group of people in this church that John had founded who had begun to teach things about Jesus that were different from what John had taught, what the other apostles had taught, and what they had learned from Jesus. So, for example, John gives us a shorthand reference to something they were saying. Verse 7, he tells us, that those who were deceiving and who had gone out into the world, they were those who don't confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. That's a phrase we saw in 1 John. It's kind of shorthand for John that's, that, that speaks to a bigger, much bigger package deal that he unpacks in 1 John. It isn't just a claim about Jesus having a body, but it's also a claim about everything Jesus took on a body in order to do. One of the things John talked about a lot in 1 John was that he had to have a body so that he could die a death that he didn't deserve to die so that he could be a sacrifice to redeem those who did deserve to die. He couldn't die for sinners like like me unless he had a body. So once you deny that he had a body, as these teachers seem to have done, then you've also denied even the possibility of a Jesus who dies. And without a possibility of a Jesus who dies... You've lost the possibility of a sacrifice that can make sinners clean and whole. If you throw away Jesus come in the flesh, you throw away the gospel. And I believe the reason John says, I'm telling you to love one another because they're trying to tell you false things about Jesus, goes straight to what he said in 1 John chapter 4. In 1 John chapter 4, he reminds them of how God had loved them in Jesus, that God loved them by sending his own son into the world to be a propitiation for our sins, a wrath-absorbing sacrifice for sin. And if that's how God loved us, John says in 1 John 4, so we also ought to love one another. Later on, he said, greater love has no man than this, that he lay down his life for his friends. By this we know love, he said, that he laid down his life for us, so we also ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. So John, it's really important to him that we look to God and his love for us in Jesus, who came here to die. And when seeing that, we apply it to our own lives. We apply it to our relationships with each other. And we know if he loved us that way, then that's how we love each other. And the reason they're tempted to do away with love as they bring in this new understanding of Jesus who never took on a body is that sometimes love feels like death. Sometimes it actually isn't based on, the calling to love is not based on anything we see in somebody else that we like very much. Sometimes the kind of love that you have for puppies just won't work in relationships that are difficult. And if the only kind of love you've got to go on is the kind that sees an object and is drawn to it, the kind that sees something beautiful and wants it in your life, if that's the only kind of love that you've got, the only dimension to love, then you will not be able to obey the command of of 2 John verse 5 and 6. You won't be able to love one another. You need to know who God is to you in Jesus if you're going to love one another in the way that his commands set out for you. Otherwise, you have no hope. The gospel is the key, in other words. Now, I want to, in just a moment, I'm going to finish up here with one more connection between truth and love at the very end of the letter. I do want to take one brief aside before I get there 
Because there's something that John says in, in verse 9 that we can't afford to miss. It's while he's sort of riffing on the idea of these people who've gone out into the world with a different understanding of Jesus, the ones that he calls deceivers and, and antichrists. He's just warned us in verse 8, watch yourselves, you don't want to lose what we've worked for. Do not believe in a version of Jesus that can't save you. And then in verse 9, he warns against everyone who goes on ahead and does not abide in the teaching of Christ. He warns that those who do go on ahead, who leave behind the teaching of Christ that he had given them, those don't have God. The reason I want to pause real, real, real briefly here on this aside is that I think that we are so tempted to the same thing these friends were. The friends of John that he wrote to were tempted to embrace a version of Jesus that seemed more advanced, more palatable than the one that they had been taught by John. I think that's what he means in verse 9 when he talks about everyone who goes on ahead, everyone who moves beyond, everyone who who looks to something that seems more believable, more plausible than what we had at the beginning. Everyone for whom what we had at the beginning seems, seems primitive and, and ugly and powerless. It's understandable why some would want to move on from the cross, from a Jesus who takes on a body that can be killed. That, that whole explanation of what it takes for us to get better requires supernatural power. We'd rather rely on our own more often than not. The supernatural makes, us, makes our skin crawl a little bit. Maybe makes us scoff. It's difficult to, to reconcile what John says about, about the pre-existent God becoming human with what we know about how the world works. So that's hard. It makes us want to look for something more advanced. It's also a statement about how extreme our brokenness is. I mean, if this is what it took... For us to be healed, then how sick were we, really? If this is what it took for us to have life, then we were dead beyond all life on our own. It's easy to move past this teaching or look for something else, partly because it confronts us with our sin as more than just brokenness, but as offense and rebellion. And because it makes us realize that we have to depend on grace desperately, a grace that we don't deserve for any hope of life with God. It's a humbling truth. And it's never sounded good. Here we are within a generation of Jesus actually dying and people are already trying to come up with better versions of who he was. We have to be careful, friends, not to assume that, that, that it's only in our century, in our time and place, that this sounds crazy. It sounded crazy to them too. The only reason to believe it is that is that Jesus really did live and really did die and really was seen by real people as real as you and I who had no more incentive than we do to believe that they actually saw him alive again from the grave. This kind of teaching has always been hard to swallow. And John doesn't reason with us much here against this temptation. He just simply warns us. And I want you to see his warning before we move on. His warning He's not, he's not trying to argue against moving on ahead to something newer, to something better, to something more palatable, to modern or sensible tastes. He's, he's warning us that if we do that, what we'll lose, whatever we might gain, what we'll lose is God. Everyone who goes on ahead and doesn't abide in the teaching of Christ, who doesn't believe in him as the one come in the flesh in order to die a death for sinners... 
does not have God. And whoever abides in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. There's that either-or mentality that John loves so much. This is how God makes a relationship with us work. This right here. A Christ in a body on a cross raised to new life is how God makes relationship with us work. It's how we have him. And it's the only path to healing because forgiveness always means pain like this for the one who forgives. Friend, if you would, if you would clean up the message of the gospel in the name of love, if you would reshade truth that the Bible teaches about him in the interest of affirming the love you read of in the scriptures, I think you should know from John and from the rest of the unified testimony of the Bible that the God you're portraying not only isn't true, he is not more loving. He's less loving. A God who doesn't have love cost him his, his, the life of his son is not a, a more loving God, but a God who got off easier. A God who for, could forgive with less skin in the game, literally. A God who did not have to die. A shell of what we actually see in God who for sinners became one of us and died so that we might live. That's what John would have us see here. Now, I want to end with one last connection from verses 10 and 11. I want to make sure this one's clear before we wrap up this morning. I've said that that truth gives love its direction. Think of it as as a map. God's commands are the truth that helps us know how to love one another. This is what love looks like. This is what it is. Then think of the model that truth gives us. Truth of the gospel. Here's who Jesus is. Here's what Jesus did and said and accomplished for us. That truth gives love its model. We should love one another in the same way we've been loved by him. The third thing I want you to see is that truth gives love its boundaries. I'm going to shift the metaphor here a little bit. Think of truth as the kind of bumpers in a bowling alley that I like to use. To where when the love that is your bowling ball is pursuing an object, pursuing a course that might end up in a gutter, truth bounces it back into the lane. Let me show you where I'm coming from here. Let me just read these two verses. This is verses 10 and 11. Truth gives love its boundaries. Verses 10 and 11. If anyone comes to you, John says, and does not bring this teaching, we're still talking about the truth of who God is, what he's done in Jesus, that Jesus took on a body so that he could die. If anybody comes to you and doesn't bring this teaching, John says, do not receive him into your house and don't even give him your greeting. And not only are you not to receive him and not to give him a greeting, you should know that if you do give him a greeting or receive him into your house, you're guilty of his wicked ways too. Verse 11 says, now, that's a stern warning. How does that strike you? Maybe you're thinking, eh, I mean, didn't John just tell us to love one another? And now he's telling us to turn away people who need food and shelter? Maybe you're, maybe you're thinking, didn't John just tell us that, that Jesus is our model for love? That our calling in life is to love like Jesus loved? And isn't one of the most famous things about Jesus that he was notorious for eating with sinners? Notorious sinners? People known to be sinners? The kind of turncoat traders who collected taxes from their people and took extra so that they could pad their own accounts? 
Maybe what you're thinking is that John's words here telling you not to let people into your house if they bring this false teaching about Jesus sounds something more like what a Pharisee would have said to Jesus when he was eating dinner with those traitors and those prostitutes and those other notorious sinners. Isn't this something the Pharisee would say, actually? Unworthy. Keep them out. Stay away. So John's main point is that we should love each other, but how can it be loving to turn people away? That doesn't sound right. Well, I think, I think one thing that, that helps to know here, I'm going to tell you a couple of things to try to drive this home. I think one thing that it, that it helps to know is that John isn't writing here primarily about hospitality. Who you should be friends with, who you should share a meal with, or even invite into your home for dinner. Yes, Jesus ate with tax gatherers and sinners. And yes, we should do the same. What John is talking about is celebrating and promoting and providing a platform for this teaching. What he's got in mind is something we're going to see again in Third John, in a more positive view of how you're supposed to take care of people who are traveling around uh, preaching the gospel. Third John's going to help us see that. What John has in mind is using your home as their home base for the teaching they're trying to spread throughout your community. Using your resources, your voice, your authority, whatever you might have, to help them do what they're doing. It's not really about hospitality. It involves hospitality. That's not the main point. Here's what, here's what one New Testament scholar says. I, I appreciate the way he said this. To welcome them, in the way John's talking about here, to welcome them was to express solidarity with them. He's not suggesting the church should refrain from showing love and concern for those who hold erroneous views, but rather the church should not encourage and help them in their propaganda. There's a difference between giving a person love and even hospitality and providing with a base for his work. So to go back to Jesus again, let's, let's take what we know about Jesus. He was famous for eating with notorious sinners. It would be as if what John's worried about here is not the fact that Jesus ate with sinners. It would be as if Jesus used his carpenter skills to build a new booth for the tax collectors he was eating with. And then while he was building it, and gave him some pointers on how he could skim a little bit more off the top. You know, if you said this, if you actually just moved the decimal point over here, they would buy it. They wouldn't know any better. And you could, actually, you could actually get more than what you're taking. It would be like Jesus using his resources in the name of love to help that guy rip off his countrymen. Now, that wouldn't be okay. It's not about, in other words, to bring this a little bit closer to us. This, this ver- these two verses. They're really not about whether or not it's okay for you to invite a Jehovah's Witness evangelist into your house to talk about Jesus. Sometimes I've heard it applied that way. I think a very well-meaning could apply it that way. A well-meaning person could. I think it's about way more than that. The warning is against us using the grace and love of Jesus as a cover for affirming or embracing or supporting or even giving a platform to something that denies Jesus. What John's doing here is reminding us that that's something that in most cases would be very loving to do. Provide a, a home base for someone. Make your home theirs. Make your food theirs. Normally, that is a bowling ball of love headed straight for a pin. But in some cases, what would otherwise be loving could actually be deadly for them, for you, for anyone who hears from them. And in that case, what you need is truth as a bumper to course correct what love ultimately wants you to do. So 
So, for example, I think, it's a, it, I think it's basically trying to help us understand how important it is to be discerning. To know that God's, that God's truth binds love and defines it. It channels it. It guides it. It tells us what it is. God's truth and nothing else defines what love is because God is love. So he gets to tell us what's good. Nothing that works against his truth can be truly loving. Not even showing somebody hospitality, which is one of the basic things the Bible celebrates. Even that can't be loving if it violates something God has told us is true. And friends, if the history of Christianity, especially in the last hundred years, is any guide to us, we're going to be most tempted to compromise truth in the name of love. That's what, that, that is where we're weakest. We're going to be most tempted to compromise truth in the name of love. But what we need to know is that as soon as we do that, we are not truly loving. John's telling us you're actually taking part in wickedness. So be discerning about what you consume for yourself. Start there. I'm not saying everything you read and learn from has got to be a Christian author. Some of my favorite books that have shaped me deeply are not written by Christians. In fact, I'm very intentional about reading widely and trying to read beyond what Christians have to say for a lot of different reasons. Excluding my sermon preparations, probably at least half of my reading is from authors who aren't Christian. And many of you, I'm sure, are doing similar, uh, similar things, making similar choices. It, it, what I'm talking about is what are you reading to be shaped by? And how are you being shaped by what you read? But pay attention to that. Who are you looking to when you're not sure what you think about something? And what's important to them? What are their values? Who is God to them? Do they celebrate the Bible? Do they seem like they want to listen to it and understand it and submit to it? Who defines for them what's good for us? The people you look to, to know how to navigate your life. Who defines for them what a flourishing and faithful life looks like? Ask these questions and ask them with your friends. I think it's a really healthy conversation to be having among church friends. Here's something I'm reading. Here's something I'm wondering about it. And what do you know about this author? And would you recommend them? And that leads me to the second piece on discernment. So be discerning about what you're consuming. But friends, I think, it's mo- I think the most direct application we can get from what John has just said here is that we've got to be really, really careful what we present to others. We've got to be really careful what other people pick up on because we told them to. I think this, these verses about not receiving into the house the one who's teaching false things about Jesus have a lot more relevance for our social media platforms and activity than they do for whether or not we open the door to a Jehovah's Witness. This passage is not about who you can be friends with. It's about who you might offer a platform to without even meaning to. About who you might be elevating without even meaning to. And about the importance of being careful because life and death hangs on it. Friends, we cannot, we cannot afford to be casual about this stuff. Not when truth and love are in danger of being separated. So would you pray with me now that we will, by the power of God's Spirit, by His ability to hold us and equip us, hold together the two things that God holds together so perfectly in himself. Let's pray. Father, we 
know that you are love and that you are truth. That these two things go together because they are in you. And you are perfectly consistent and faithful, dependable, reliable. We want to be like you. We want to be agents in this world where you've put us, in this city, in this church, in every friendship that every person in this room gets to enjoy. We want to be agents of the love that you showed us in Jesus and the truth that you've told us about yourself and what you've done and how we can live. There is much in us that shrinks back from this. There are plenty of reasons that we have for rubbing off rough edges here and there. And I I pray that you protect us from ourselves. And that through our relationships with each other, our conversations, our encouragements, our good questions, you would make our community, our church community, a culture where we are carefully guiding one another towards love in truth. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.